Hello, it's me, a slightly sick but COVID-negative Jesse Single. You're about to hear audio from an event I did with Rob Henderson on February 20th, which was the day his excellent debut book, Troubled, a memoir of foster care, family, and social class, came out. You should buy it. Link in the show notes. If you don't know who Rob Henderson is, you definitely should, so keep listening. This is 100% bonus content. Premium subscribers, you'll have more exclusive stuff in your feed featuring me and Katie in the days to come. Non-premium subscribers, head on over to blockreported.org to join our movement. Thank you, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the interview. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Jesse Single. I'm a writer and podcaster, and I'm very pleased to be here tonight with Rob Henderson. Rob is the author of Trouble, the memoir of foster care, family, and social class, once described as self-made by the New York Times. Can I also call you self-made? Yes. <laughs> once described as self-made by the New York Times and by Jesse Single, he grew up in foster homes in California, served in the U.S. Air Force, and received a B.S. from Yale and a Ph.D. in psychology from the University of Cambridge. Rob's writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Boston Globe, among other outlets. And most importantly, his Substack newsletter is sent out each week to more than 50,000 subscribers. A little bit jealous. Um, I highly recommend that Substack, which is called Rob Henderson's Newsletter. This is the only time tonight I will accuse Rob of not being creative. So um, I'll try to be brief. We are here because Troubled is out today. I am very honored to help Rob launch it. Um, I was very excited when I found out about this book. I write and think and talk about the culture wars, and there's been a series, as some of you may have know, may know, there's been a series of blow-ups in left-of-center institutions involving social justice, and um, a lot of these are portrayed as being white versus black or liberal versus conservative or anti-racist versus racist, but often they're really more about the richer and the more educated versus the poorer and the less educated. One of my favorite examples came with a woman named Dawn Frederick. She was owner of a literary agency called Red Sofa Literary. Uh, This is a Twin City Areas company. During the um, troubles after George Floyd's murder, she tweeted uh, something that really pissed people off and that caused a number of her staffers to resign and threw her whole business and reputation into chaos. You would think that what she tweeted was something super racist, super offensive. In fact, what had happened was she saw people looting a gas station near her and she tweeted, someone should call the police. (laughs) To 90 or 95 or 99% of Americans, that is what you do. I mean, you would call the police, yes? If you saw looting? Yeah, of course. Okay, well, that's racist, but uh, we'll let it slide. Um, But because of this very weird divide between the most privileged Americans and everyone else. This was enough to to basically ruin her career. And um, this is sort of what Rob writes about, or one of the things he writes about, this idea of luxury beliefs, which we will get to, but I don't want this brilliant coinage and this brilliant idea to overshadow the memoir he wrote. This is an awesome memoir. I guess a lot of you haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it's just a really touching story of Rob's rough and tumultuous upbringing how he overcame it. Um, I, I'm jealous because Rob has this academic brilliance paired with 
like a novelist eye for how to write about characters and how to write about them in this sort of unflinching but colorful way. Um, so I'm just very excited to be here helping Rob promote Trouble. Give it up for Rob Henderson. Before we continue, I didn't realize this was a sponsored segment. Can you tell everyone about Masa traditional tortilla trips? Also, I haven't eaten yet, so I'm going to give them a try. Yeah, these were, uh, I mean, a friend of mine uh, launched this snack company, seed oil-free chips. Uh, I've tried them. They're good. They're sturdy. Good for nachos. Recommended. What's your name of the friend? Can you, can you say? Seth Goldstein. He's somewhere in here. I think he's over there. Very handsome man in a green sweater. I'm not... I'm not just saying this because it would be awkward if I delivered any other verdict. These are really good. <laughs> You're telling me these have no seed oils? I, that's, that's the rumor. I mean, I don't know if those are regulated. So, so you wrote a whole memoir to promote your friend's chips. I mean, I, mean, I don't have, you know, stock in it. Or Why don't we start? Um, it's actually a good story how we got here to the Village Underground. Yeah, well, I... Uh, hoped to initially do something like this in a bookstore, ran into more difficulties than anticipated, uh, wrote a post about some of those difficulties, and yeah, Jesse reached out and uh, was very kind and generous in allowing this event to go forward here. So That's nice of you to say. I wasn't fishing yeah, for that. What, yeah, what were the kinds of difficulties you... I mean... <laughs> Talk more yeah, about yeah. How, how great I am. Well, I mean, Jesse is... I mean, he's... Okay, well, the difficulties were, I mean, you know, we reached out to several bookstores, no, seemingly no interest, which was, I mean, it was disappointing to me because I've always loved bookstores. I still love bookstores. Um, And so the idea of doing an event like this in one was just something out of my, you know, would have been something out of like my 14-year-old fantasies or something. And so... Not being able to do that was really... Um, it hit me harder than I expected, actually. And then when I looked at some of these stores and saw some of the authors they were hosting, and I, I know that it's it's sort of a gray area. No one really knows for certain, right? But I would see authors with... You know, they were writing books. You know, the there was that the, the book by the polyamory ladies getting a lot of attention. <laughs> so by the way, I shouldn't yeah. say, you're just opening for her. We're going to bring her on. Yeah, yeah, she's coming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, okay, you know, fine. You know, I, I, I don't know, like, the factors that go into the decisions for who gets to speak in a bookstore and who doesn't, but it was difficult for me to imagine that this was, you know, uh, a completely sort of objective impartial decision. Um, I do think that, you know, there are barriers that people can run into, that I can run into, uh, simply because of maybe the message that I'm... Uh, promoting or some of the ideas in my book or some of the affiliations that I have. Um, there was a, a review that came out earlier today in the Washington Post who uh, was very eager to point out that this book had been endorsed by J.D. Vance and Jordan Peterson. <laughs> and that means something to people. And, uh, you know, I personally, I think that this may have had something to do with at least some of these bookstores' decisions. But all that being said, I still love bookstores. You know, don't, you know, I, I, I'm still going to go, I'm still going to, but, you know, in the, in the same way that I think, that I criticize elite universities a lot in this book and in a lot of my writing, I do think that there's space for reform, and I still think that there's, there's a lot of good work being done in a lot of these institutions, so, 
you know, I'm not one of these like tear it all down kind of people. So, um, all that being said, more more good compliments and praise and everything directed to to Jesse for thank helping you, to make this you. happen. That's what I was looking for. Um, okay, so you you bounced around foster care in your younger years. You were enrolled in six different elementary schools prior to third grade, um, and then you found what you thought would be your permanent family, which was was more stable, but that wasn't the end of sort of your troubles. This is like a pretty basic and personal question, but I, I think in a sense everything in your book and your political project comes back to this. I mean, what what do you think that did to you in the long run as an adult? Uh, well, but by, by the way, you could probably my my voice. I mean, I'm jet lagged. I I'm recovering from a head cold. Uh, I promise this is not the voice you'll hear on my audiobook. Um, <laughs> otherwise, I'm operating at 100. I know, so you have my classic radio yeah. <laughs> voice. And have, I'm sorry, you have to hear it. Wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, well, uh, I mean, what, is, what does it do? I mean, I talk about it in the book. I mean, it was, you know, the the earliest memories being taken from my birth mother, and. Not really understanding why, you know, three year, you know, I was three years old, and you don't have sophisticated thoughts. Um, you know, this is this is sort of confirmed research in developmental psychology, animal research, and so on. I'm reading this really interesting book called Love at Good Park by. Uh, it's about the psychologist Harry Harlow. Some of you may be familiar. He did this research with monkeys and the cloth mother, the cloth mother, the wire mother, um, the importance of attachment in early infancy. And, you know, my mother was addicted to drugs. She was neglectful. She wasn't able to care for me. Uh, and yet still, you know, I'm a three-year-old boy, and she's my entire world. And so to be taken was incredibly devastating, being taken into the homes, different foster homes every few months. Um, so, you know, initially there, there was this sort of intense, acute feeling of emotional pain. But then, you know, as a small child, the body adapts. We cope. We have these survival responses. And eventually, by the third or the third or fourth home, um, I stopped responding to these shifts, and my emotional wiring became reconfigured such that I didn't really feel anything except numbness, except um, sort of disconnect. I was sort of disconnected from affect. I couldn't access those feelings anymore. But at least for me, the effect was not only that I could no longer feel negative emotions, but also positive emotions. Um, you know, the, the, the response, it sort of overcorrects. So it's not just negative emotions, but also positivity. And it's just this kind of emptiness, this numbness, this sometimes get, you know, especially as a, you know, through puberty gets expressed as rage and aggression. Um, and so that was the effect it had on me. And then, you know, later I became older and started doing some research and reading research papers in psychology and so forth. And this is not an uncommon response for a lot of kids in these situations, especially young boys. It was interesting reading all this. Just, I mean, I, I grew up in a stable two-parent household. Just that idea of being a three-year-old and viewing adult figures as ephemeral rather than sort of the center of your universe and something you can always rely on. I mean, that, that has to do a number on you to a certain extent. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's... like the, the foster care system is, you know, it's flawed... And, you know, I mean, I looked some of the data on this recently, but the number of foster kids in the U.S. has doubled roughly since the year 2000, primarily because of uh, addiction issues uh, in the wake of the opioid crisis and so forth. And so not only is the, as a foster kid, not only are the homes fleeting, you know, you're, you're going to a different home, you're being relocated 
but you're also entering homes where you have eight or ten foster siblings and maybe you form bonds with them, you have a foster sibling, and then they're taken. And so day to day, not only do you not know where you're going to live, but you don't know who's going to be in the home tomorrow or next week or next month. And so you don't know which of your your, your social circle. It's constantly shifting and, um, and adjusting. And this is also uh, incredibly difficult to, to just learn how to form connections and relationships with other kids. What grade was the, um, I'll explain what I mean, the Bill Nye thing, it was like third grade-ish? That was, that was second grade. So in second grade, you had a teacher who knew you liked Bill Nye, and you were having trouble learning to read due to a lack of motivation, and your teacher's like, well, if you want to be Bill Nye, you're going to have to learn to read, and you confidently say to this teacher, Bill Nye doesn't read. <laughs> and that was interesting to me, because it, it made me realize how much some of us take for granted in terms of the models we build of adults and what they do. And growing up where I grew up, I, I knew adults reading because there were books around and I saw them read. If you're in a situation where there aren't stable adults in your life, how do you scrap together an idea of like what the adult world is and what adults do? Yeah, yeah. Well, I went from thinking Bill Nye doesn't read to accepting that he does read and now I'm coming back around. And, 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 uh, um, yeah, so. fuck you, Bill Nye. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, I mean... Like the, the the process of I mean even learning to read I, I mean I was moving homes all the time changing schools every six months um, no one read to me in the homes there was I described in the book there's one point where uh, I was doing so poorly academically that the social worker sent a psychologist the teachers were concerned that I had a learning disability and you know in hindsight I just thought it was it's funny that you have this kid who has no stability in his life his grades are suffering and the solution was to medicalize it that oh let's send a psychologist maybe he has dyslexia maybe he has learning disability there's something wrong with him and let's medicate him and that was the answer to this now fortunately I, I took this test and I scored slightly below average I put in this half-hearted effort you mentioned I was just kind of this unmotivated kid I didn't really feel the need, I didn't understand why it was necessary for me to put in any effort, and so it's kind of a scattershot weird, like I looked at my results recently, I got this thick file from my adoptive mother of all of these reports and documents from my time in the system, and it was like, you know, pretty, pretty good on the math, but like, you know, like the 78 on the verbal, and it was just kind of like, and when I think back to that time, I was, I remembered vividly that if the question was interesting or sort of sparked my curiosity, I would give it some effort where it's like, oh, here's a picture of a fire truck and here's a paper ruler, tell me how many inches this fire truck is, and I would like, oh, this is kind of cool, sort of engaging, but then they show me a picture of like, you know, a bald guy combing the empty, you know, his empty head, he's like, what's going on here? And I'm like, it's a comb and a guy, and we're like, well, is there anything odd about this photo? And I said, no, like, you know, <laughs> nothing odd about it, but, I mean, there was, and I knew they wanted me to say there was, but I said no. Um, and, and so that kind of defiance, and that anger gets expressed in weird ways like that with kids too. And naturally, you know, someone could look at these scores and say, "Oh, he's, you know, he's okay, but he's not very smart and whatever," and get sort of shuffled back into the system. So. There's this key moment where you, um, as you put it, you take some initiative and you get a job and you make a few hundred bucks over the summer, which at the time is a lot of money to you, for you. Um, this quote really jumped out at me. I started to understand that there were reliable connections between good choices and good outcomes and bad choices and bad outcomes. It had taken a long time for me to internalize these connections because outcomes were so often delayed. 
This struck me as like really important because a huge part of just being an organism is learning the connection between what you do and what happens as a result. And I'd imagine if you're in a chaotic setting, that process gets disrupted. So, I mean, talk about that a little. I'm curious about that. Yeah, I mean, one thing that became... I mean, I'd always had this sort of uh, intuitive understanding that when I reflected back, this before I wrote the book, that when I would think back to my childhood and think back to the periods of my life that were relatively happy and where I was excelling in school and things seemed to be going well in my life was when there was stability at home and whenever there was instability introduced, whether in the foster homes or later after I was adopted and there was divorces and separations and family tragedies and financial catastrophes and just a lot of chaos. Um, you know, my grades, would, my grades would suddenly suffer, my attention span would wander, I would find other sort of, you know, uh, misadventures with my friends with drugs and vandalizing buildings and so forth. Wait, you need but, there's one misadventure yeah. I need you to talk about, the choking game. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> after... So I was I was adopted into this, like, blue-collar, kind of working-class town in Northern California called Red Bluff. And there was a period of stability, but then my adoptive parents split up. I sort of... I was adopted uh, into this neighborhood right at a point where other social scientists now have documented this across the country, people like Robert Putnam and Charles Murray and others that, you know, working class communities are sort of deteriorating and, you know, really started to accelerate in the early to mid 90s and late 90s when I was adopted. And I so sort of got a firsthand like, front row seat to, to see this. And so it was divorce. Um, and I spent a lot of time in the wake of this divorce hanging out at my friend's house and my friend's uh, parents were foster parents and so they had just a bunch of kids coming in and out of this house at all hours, and the parents were also kind of halfway checked out. And my friend's older sister uh, taught me how to play the choking game, which was, um, you know, this is what, you know, you stick a bunch of, like, young kids. She was, she was slightly older. I think we were, I want to say we were, like, 12. She must have been maybe 15 at this point. And so adolescents, teenagers, and basically... <laughs> I'm just, don't do this. But, and you, I, mean, I don't know. Let's hear him. Well, I mean, I also learned you can do this to yourself if you want. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, but essentially, you, you, so she taught me, you breathe very uh, shallow breaths for about a minute, and then you stand up very quickly so you're lightheaded, and then you press the carotid arteries on both sides of your neck, and it cuts off oxygen to your brain. And you essentially just pass out for, you know, 10, 15 seconds, and then you come to, and you feel this extreme feeling of euphoria. Your body's, like, numb and tingly, and uh, you black out, and you wake up feeling slightly happier. Um, and so this is, like, a, you know, the most efficient way to get high possible. And so, you know, but, but there are cases of... Uh, and, and when this game became popularized, this was in, like, the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, there were uh, reports, so I googled this and found that there were reports of uh, kids dying from playing this game. So it is like it's dangerous, and there was a, a bit of a panic uh, during that time of you know kids playing. CNN ran a thing on it, and um, but that's you know that's what happens, right? Like we we were doing drugs, but then when we couldn't get drugs or we couldn't get weed or we couldn't get pills, it was like, well, let's just choke each other, and you know that's that's you know, how kids can sort of disengage from their feelings when they're going through sort of family and emotional difficulties I don't want to do too many instances of like comparing our relative upbringings but I, this idea that 
being able to envision the future is important to become like a productive citizen basically um i'm curious about that because like where i grew up the future was talked about constantly and we had role models of what our future could look like everywhere and all we heard about was like how to get into the right school what do you want to do when you grow up i mean talk a little bit about what it's like to have the future just be this like completely grayed out fuzzy thing assuming i you agree with that assessment you know that's that's right i remember like my mindset as a teenager and the mindsets of my friends and the guys i grew up around co-workers so i had two jobs in high school um was a dishwasher and bus boy and then later a bag boy at a grocery store and um <clears throat> it was like there were like two tracks uh it was like this weekend and then like 20 years from now <laughs> but no like and so 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 this weekend was just like let's you know drink cheap beer and choke each other whatever and then and then 20 years from now we're going to be living in a nice house nice car you know good family whatever have have a good time uh be very successful somehow but there was no step like no no sort of concrete bridge from now and this weekend and 20 years from now as far as like how to do that and so it was always the immediate future and then the distant future. And what I've learned, just sort of speaking with people who, who had more fortunate upbringings, who went to college and had, we were raised in environments where there were expectations about getting good grades and going to college and being successful, that those role models are all around you. And this is something I think a lot of people don't understand is the, the sort of messages that people receive from pop culture, from media, from writers and creatives and so forth. If you if you grow up on a daily basis with your two married parents and you're in a neighborhood where everyone's married and everyone around you is kind of living that, you know, bourgeois life, those values, and yeah, maybe you turn on Netflix or you open a magazine and there's something titillating or interesting or provocative, it could, you know, it, it may be interesting to you, but around you, you still have good role models and good behaviors to model. But if you're a kid living in chaos and squalor and your mom, you know, you're, you're raised by a single mom who's working or she's not able to devote her full attention to you and you don't have your dad around and, you know, there are no male role models in your neighborhood and you're at a rundown school and there's just no one around you in your personal life to teach you how to behave. You just have your, you know, your idiot 15-year-old friends and then you have TV and movies and pop culture and music videos and so on. Like, where are you supposed to decide? Like, where, where are you receiving uh, good messages and role models and, and ways to live? So I think there's a, a misunderstanding there that actually it is important that it's, it's, it's more important for poor and working class kids that if they're not getting it at home, it's, it's you know, the culture at large, the, you know, I, I know people quibble with this word, the elites, it would be nice if they could, with their outsized cultural and political and economic influence, uh, show some good good behavior and good values uh, to the kids that, that they often privately transmit to, to their own families. I don't want to overstate this, but like growing up in Massachusetts, I definitely, it was instilled in me that anyone who like talks about how single mother-headed households are potentially problematic or bad for kids, that that was like coded as a, a right-wing trope and as false. Um, how do you feel about that? <laughs> I mean, I like, you know, I, I get like emotionally it's difficult because most single moms are doing the best they can and their attention and resources and time are very limited. 
Um, but, you know, they're writers and authors. Um, there's that guy who wrote, Warren Farrell, he uses the term fatherless homes. And I think that's, uh, even though, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's referring to the same exact uh, uh, event of a single mom, but fatherless, it shifts, it shifts the attention away from the mother who's doing the best she can to the father who's not there. And I think that's maybe a, a more sort of effective way of, of sort of persuading people that there is an issue here that, um, you know, we don't necessarily have to point fingers or blame the single moms, but, um, you know, fathers who aren't as present as they could be. Um, you know, I think it's it's worth sort of pointing out that they have responsibilities too. Yeah, that was one of the interesting things about the book is like you you grew up in a household with two moms and they were consistently like trying to find you a father figure and you were just like, no, thank you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I, I think like their their instincts were probably right that you know they you know there was just this you know me was this thirteen year old kid fourteen year old kid who was kind of my academic record, my performance, and my attention. It was spotty. Like, I could do well, but I really needed a lot of, you know, it required a lot of effort on their part to sort of keep me uh, contained. And so I could understand, like, maybe it would be good to have, like, a, you know, father figure who could give him a, you know, different perspective or something. But for me, you know, I'd lived, I'd never known my birth father. And then I grew up in all these foster homes, and then there was a period where I had my adoptive father after I was adopted, but then they divorced, and then my adoptive father stopped speaking with me, and so I lost two fathers. And then by this point, I was kind of done with the idea of, you know, of what, wanting to receive any advice or wanting to form a connection with any kind of father figure. And I was also just kind of a rebellious kid, and I had my friends and didn't want anyone sort of interfering with you know, the, the mischief we would get into. What do you think, I mean, okay, so you, you eventually find the military. You join the Air Force. This is a transformative moment for you. There's one maybe pat version of it where if you don't find the military, your life falls apart. You also like clearly have a lot of like latent talent and intelligence. What's your honest assessment of what would have happened if the military hadn't been an option for you? You know, I, I have this line in the book uh, that some people have taken some issue with, which the line is something like, uh, you know, if you had replayed the circumstances of my life on repeat nine times out of ten, I probably would have ended up incarcerated or, or worse. And and then people say, well, you're smart. And you're, you know, people, you know, especially like sort of the, the people who are very into like intelligence and psychometrics. And they're like, oh, you would have been fine. And I don't, I don't think that's true. Um, I think that uh, academic ability, sort of raw aptitude, that's a necessary but not sufficient ingredient to do well in school. Um, yes, you need some minimal level of sort of academic inclination, but you also need sort of forces around you to channel it into a productive direction. If you're mired in chaos and squalor and deprivation and all those things, you know, those good parts of yourself, they're not going to manifest. The only reason I was able to... Uh, Know, find my path into higher education was because of the military, because it contained me. Um, if I had stayed in Red Bluff, you know, there's a story we could tell where maybe I would have gotten my act together and become like, I don't know, the, the manager of the local Walmart or something. Or there's a story we could tell where, you know, I was drinking and driving a lot when I was 17 and I could have just wrecked my car and died. Um, 
So there are a variety of possible outcomes there, but I think the incarceration or worse, I mean, that was very much uh, a strong possibility and probably more likely than, than the uh, sort of, you know, the manager of the store situation. Okay, so you go from the Air Force, you get into Yale. I'm, I'm correct in saying that's where you really start to, like, formulate this idea of a luxury belief, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's right. Um, the term hadn't... Uh, come to me until I, I had arrived in grad school uh, in 2019. But the idea started to percolate and take shape in my mind. I mean, really from the first semester on campus. So, you know, I, I arrived at Yale at a very unique time. Um, I, you know, sometimes I'll say that I arrived at Yale to witness the birth of what people now call wokeness. It wasn't really the birth. Um, I know uh, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Hyde and others have sort of traced this back to maybe 2011 or 2012, but I witnessed the, yeah, I think I witnessed the birth of the moment where it spilled out of the universities, because in 2015 that was when the, what people now refer to as the Halloween costume controversy with the Christakis's took place at Yale, and that got a lot of national attention, and a lot of think pieces were written about it, and people started to wonder, okay, so something's Sorry, does everyone know what that is? Because briefly, this was Erica Christakis, uh, an administrator. Nicholas Christakis is a sociologist. Right, yes. She was an administrator. She just wrote an email saying... We don't need to necessarily police every white girl who dresses up like Pocahontas, right? <laughs> Essentially, and this, this caused a huge blow. Sorry. Yeah. No. 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 That's that's exactly. Yeah. And so, so that's, yeah, the the students accused her of defending cultural appropriation and that this was emblematic of systemic racism on campus and in the country as a whole. And then it turned into hundreds of students marching around campus, calling for her and her husband to be fired. Were these viral videos of Nicholas Christakis in the courtyard being screamed at by students? And you know, for me, I was. Uh, let's see. This was. This was October, Halloween, right? So I got out of the Air Force in August, started class in September, and then in October, <laughs> I got to watch the sons and daughters of millionaires say they felt unsafe at one of the richest universities in the world, um, and use terms like, you know, they felt unsafe, or they felt like they were in danger, or they didn't um, feel welcome on campus. Um, and that sucks when you're at Yale and you don't feel welcome. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and I lived off campus in New Haven, and uh, you know, some of you may know about New Haven. It's a very sort of run-down, blue-collar town, and so I would walk off campus to my apartment, and I would walk through the New Haven Green, where there were people who were marginalized and dispossessed and addicted to drugs and homeless and mental illness, and I just had to walk through a lot of this poverty back to my apartment after class or after watching some demonstration on campus. Um, Did any of those drug addicts wear inappropriate Halloween costumes? <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, no, no, not to my not to my knowledge. Uh, but but I yeah, and I well, it would it would be impolite to say I felt unsafe walking through there. Um, and so uh, that was my experience. So so I just saw this this um, this very abrupt introduction to, you know, this, this very thin-skinned uh, attitude around words, around opinions, around, you know, the idea that an email could cause someone pain was just so amusing to me. <laughs> um, and then uh, I would hear, you know, students express opinions that were very much at odds with opinions that I would hear from my adoptive moms growing up or from my friends or from the people I knew in the military and 
I mean, it's really funny. Like, I remember being in the military, and I wasn't, like, I, was, I never was a political person. I mean, this is something I talk about in the book, too, is just the sort of the class distinction as far as, like, being informed. Um, it's really important if you're a college-educated person to be informed. This is, a, this is a class distinction. This is a marker that, do you know what's going on with cur- current events in the world? And when I was growing up in Red Bluff, uh, and, and this is sort of borne out by sociological research, you know, if people who aren't college-educated, they usually aren't super plugged into current events. They will uh, read, like, local newspapers and read about local events in their town, but they're not particularly interested in what's going on halfway around the world or in sort of big metropolitan cities in, in the country and so on. And, you know, when I was growing up, we couldn't afford cable, so I didn't watch CNN or Fox or any of these channels. You know, we subscribed to the Red Bluff Daily News, and that was it. And then I get to campus, and it's, like, very important to keep up with the news and be informed. And, uh, you know, Yale would have these stacks of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal piled up in the libraries. And I became aware, oh, you have to read this stuff and, like, have a cursory understanding and knowledge of what's going on and uh, be able to, you know, basically, you know, uh, recapitulate the latest fashionable op-ed or pink piece and so on and at least sort of know what's going on there. And that was also uh, kind of a shock for me, too. Um, All of these, at least to me, these were sort of subtle and intricate patterns that I was completely unaware of. And, you know, so I was like this alien observing this, like, oh, must read newspaper, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And this comes to the idea of of luxury beliefs, which is, tell me if I have the definition right. It's a belief, belief held by sort of upper class people that provides them benefits by signaling they have the correct beliefs, um, and which costs them very little, but which will harm the lower classes, such as saying we should abolish the police because rich people will always find some way to be secure, poor people not so much. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. So, so the luxury beliefs idea, ideas and opinions that confer status on the affluent while often inflicting costs on the lower classes. And yeah, I mean, the, the, the abolish the police idea... It was a perfect example of this. That so, you know, a key feature of a luxury belief is that the believer is often sheltered from the consequences of his or her belief. There's a, a lower likelihood of it affecting their life relative to most other people. And so, you know, when I when I coined the term in 2019, I, I never would have guessed that within a year's time, people would literally be calling to abolish the police. They, they walked it back later. I think they changed it to defund at some point, and defund was ambiguous enough that you know people found ways to defend it. Um, but, you know, there were, uh, representative survey data collected, uh, in 2020 and 2021, which found that the highest income Americans were the most in support of defunding the police. And then, you know, there were, uh, surveys, more local surveys in places like New York City, Detroit, I think Minneapolis as well, which found that, uh, you know, just among Democrats, white Democrats were by far the most in support of defunding the police and black and Hispanic Democrats were the least supportive. And so... You know, this is a, a huge mismatch. I mean, you know, it it's, it's, makes you look interesting and sophisticated and uh, allows or so sort of uh, communicates to people that, uh, you know, you are keeping up with the latest uh, cultural fashions. But when these ideas get implemented into policy or just become uh, embedded into the culture, it does have downstream consequences. And so in, you know, some of you may have seen some of the statistics that uh, uh, arose out of 2020 and 2021, violent crime rates increased, homicide increased, and so on. And these were reported as, like, aggregate statistics. You know, you open up the Wall Street Journal, and it would say, you know, year over year, violent crime has increased X percent since 2020. And these were statistics. And then 
you know, on occasion, especially over the last few months, uh, you know, people uh, like there was a, there was a tech entrepreneur or an executive that was killed in San Francisco, and this person was identified by name in the San Francisco newspapers and so on, and you know, got these articles written about what had occurred and what happened to him. There were a couple of journalists uh, a few months ago that were killed, and they were also identified by name and got you know whole articles written about them. And so to me, it was like, okay, if you know, my impression of this was if, if the peasants kill each other, you know, these are just statistics, you know, year over year, violent crime increased this amount. But when an aristocrat gets killed, you know, they get identified by name, they get a piece written about them, you know, this is, they're, they're, they're further honored uh, as, as a result of being victimized. And this was, uh, you know, people, people asked me, okay, so, so these people were killed, you know, do luxury beliefs, you know, do they still exist, even if members of, of the affluent and educated are being targeted and it's, it's I guess like for every one of those people who were murdered there were probably 20 others uh, who who uh, were killed who were you know, just ordinary people or poor people what are some other notable luxury beliefs uh, the, the one that I talk about uh, in in some of my other essays and, and in the book as well the kind of denigration of the two-parent family there was a really good book that came out uh, a few months ago the two-parent privilege by Melissa Carney um, and you know, I I, tr- I track this the 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 sort of development of how the family has changed over time. And in 1960, the vast majority, 95 percent of children born in the U.S., regardless of social class, were raised by both of their birth parents. And by 2005, for the working class, it had plummeted to 30 percent. And for the upper class, uh, it was 95%, and it dropped slightly to 85%. Um, <clears throat> and this, you know, I read these statistics, and it just very much reflected my own experiences, where I think back to how I grew up in Red Bluff. I have five close friends, you know, I write about in Troubled. And of the six of us, none of us were raised by both of our parents. You know, it was me raised in foster homes. I had friends raised by single moms. I had one friend raised by a single dad. One friend raised by his grandmother because his mom was on drugs and his dad was in prison. And these were the most common kinds of stories you would see uh, at my high school. And then I get to Yale and almost everyone I meet was raised by both of their birth parents. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, I know that, you know... And some of them accused you of being privileged, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Some of them. I mean, yeah, there, there, at one point I did ask someone about the Christakis email and I'm like, why is this offensive? And this, you know, this young woman who grew up in Greenwich and went to Exeter and you know, she told me I was too privileged to understand uh, <laughs> what happened there. That's awesome. And, uh, and so, so yeah, the, the, the family issue, like, I, I, know, I know that there are occasions where separation and single parent, and life is messy and people are complicated and it can make sense, but in the vast majority of cases, you know, it's, it's due to sort of low conflicts or disputes or, you know, I'll give you an example of this. So, so two people I, I um, recently spoke with who read my newsletter, these two guys, uh, separate conversations were telling me that they were, you know, feeling a little bit unhappy in their marriages and, you know, they thought that maybe things had kind of run its course with their wives and they didn't know what to do and maybe this was the end of it. And then they read something that I wrote and they decided to work on their marriage and stay with their wives and sort of figure out how to make this, because they both had small children, you know, they had families and, you know, they read something I'd written and thought, okay, I don't want to do that to, to my kids. And, 
I mean, the thing is, like, you know, if, if, if you're in a position like, I think they both worked in tech, and, you know, they were very well, odds are the kids are going to be fine anyway. Uh, and that's another point that I make, is that, you know, divorce and separation and single parenthood, it looks like whatever, like, it looks like nesting, it looks like having a nanny or an au pair, like, people can make it work if you're college educated and you have a high paying job, but it looks very different for um, people who don't have means. And so to promote it or to glorify it or to say that other people should do it, um, it does have downstream consequences in terms of our attitudes around marriage, in terms of people's commitment. I mean, I'm even thinking about like a young guy who's, you know, maybe he's married uh, and he's had a difficult life. And then he's, you know, he's like these guys I just mentioned, uh, but he comes from a different background, maybe less educated and so on. He's thinking maybe the marriage has run its course and then he turns on a TV show or opens a magazine or, you know, listens to the radio and all the messages around him are like, you know, marriage actually isn't that great and, may, you know, it's actually more fun to be in a polycule or whatever. <laughs> like that, this will sort of in the aggregate have some consequences uh, for, uh, for people who are sort of outside of the educated bubble. I haven't read the polyamory book um, that took up the bookstore slots you wanted. <laughs> uh, or, But I read the, uh, the Emily Gould article about almost divorcing her husband, and I feel like a lot of this just comes down to, and I say this as someone who's much older than, well, not much, 10 years-ish. Um, at a certain point, life just gets like a little bit more boring and routine. And I think people look for some sort of out, whether it's like ending their relationship or like, Oh, I'm a kingster now. Let's see how that goes. And I think it's like almost more honest to just lean into the fact that things aren't always going to be exciting, and there's something to be said for like peace and fulfillment. Yeah, yeah, I, I, and and that used to be kind of the conventional wisdom that you know it's not always going to be like you know it's funny like now I, I read like reviews of these poly books and stuff and they have this term new relationship energy you know it's like you know like this just used to be like you know back back in the day it used to be called butterflies or whatever like this is just that's like a normal feeling and then you sort of grow together and make it work and now it's like people want that initial buzz that high all the time um and yeah there's not a lot of sort of modeling in, in sort of pop culture and in, in society at large now that, again, if you're a kid in an upper-middle-class neighborhood, you probably see it with your parents and the people around you, but if you're not in that environment, you're not really getting it anywhere. You're not getting it in your neighborhood, and then you're not getting it in the images you see on uh, mass media or social media. One of the things you don't really talk much about your in your book is uh, Cambridge, where you got your PhD. There's a lot more about Yale. And, and try as the U.S. hat. We've tried with all our might to export our worst ideas about race and class to the UK. They're stubborn. They've resisted. I'm curious what you saw there that was maybe different from how we approach those subjects. Yeah, I didn't write that much about Cambridge in the book. I mean, partially because I really only had one year there because I arrived, I mean, essentially, let's see, late 2018, I got there, and then early 2020, you know, lockdowns, the university shut down. I was running my psychology studies online, uh, Jesse probably wrote about how they didn't replicate, and uh, that's that's why I brought you up here. Uh, <laughs> and so you know, like that's you know, I didn't have much, as much interaction and as much, um, uh, you know, in the way of observations and interesting thoughts, uh, the way that I had during that full sort of undergrad experience at Yale. And so you know, I just didn't, I, you know, I was I was a little concerned that not not only was I kind of a cultural and outsider to Cambridge, but I also just didn't have much in the way of material and observation and so forth. So I touched a little on it, but not as much as I would have liked. But what have I, I mean, what have I learned? I mean, the, it does seem like, 
you know, the, the class divides are still very much there, um, and the family uh, divergences are there as well, that people who go on to attend universities tend to come from stable, married to parent families, and then there's this vast underclass. Um, they're more comfortable, I think, talking about it because there's not a racialized component that the, there's a huge white underclass in Britain who live in slums and who, you know, are in, like, alcoholics and drug addicts and all that stuff. And there's just a lot of poverty and a lot of fatherlessness and a lot of kids who are living in squalor. Um, and I think their media is more willing to, to talk about it because, you know, they don't have that, that, that sort of thorny complication. Um, they're also more at ease, I think, with speaking about class. I think Americans, a lot of people will, you know, there's, there's this discomfort around it that we want to believe we live in this egalitarian society, that anyone can make it, and that there aren't so many barriers. And I think generally it's, it's like, in, in a relative sense, I think America is a more sort of open country. Um, because in Britain, like, the, the accent gives you away, right? The, the dialect, where you come from. Like, I remember I had this conversation with, <laughs> I, I'm not going to name him, but I had this conversation with a Cambridge professor, and he was talking about these two postdocs in his department, and he was like, you know, as academics, they're competent, but they're never really going to make it because they're Northerners. <laughs> and, and I didn't even know what he was talking about. This is recent. Like, this, you know, so again, I'm like not fully in the loop Northerners, of what's going like on. Northerners, like Game of Thrones? Or? <laughs> yeah, something like, yeah, you know, and I was like, okay, North, and then I Googled it later. I'm like, okay, so there is like this sort of North-South divide where London is in the South. Like, you know, it's more metropolitan. It's more sophisticated. And the Northerners are like the, the like flyover country, essentially, in yeah. the UK. They're Northerners. They're, they, you know, they don't have the accent. They don't. They weren't trained to fluidly and and seamlessly engage in an elite university like Cambridge, and you know I just didn't fully get what he was talking. But but they're they're more comfortable just saying that out loud. Yeah. Um, so I want to run two current events by you to get the Rob Henderson take. We're also going to take audience questions. I can't see anything. There's a mic. There will be a mic around there if people want to start uh, lining up. Yeah, I think that's or whatever works for you guys. Um, okay, the two these were two very Rob Henderson stories uh, lately, so I'm just going to put you on the spot. Recently, there was a controversy. Sorry, <laughs> I can't relate this one without cracking up. There's a controversy at an elementary school in Hayward, California, um, in the Bay Area, about three hours south of where you grew up in Red Bluff. An elementary school full of kids who um, a lot of Spanish-speaking kids, kids of immigrants very low scoring on things like reading English um, and the school district's idea to improve the reading scores was to spend a quarter million dollars on a program called Woke Kindergarten <laughs> they brought in this sort of radical p- pedagogy type to smash capitalism, tell them about how Israel's bad, <laughs> filter that event through a Rob Henderson worldview. how does something like that happen? I mean, this just seems... Well, there, I mean, there are different, different interpretations that I have of this. I mean, one way to look at it, so, so sometimes people will ask me, uh, you know, luxury beliefs, how, are, are, they, are they calculated? Are they, are they um, consciously and deliberately deceitful and duplicitous? Or is it um, unconscious that, you know, you just kind of say the things that you need to say to make you look good and bolster your reputation or prevent being ostracized? And I think most people convince themselves that they're doing the right thing. And in, in this case, that, that's one interpretation, that they really believe that the 
sort of existing conventional academic structure is oppressive and that the way to dismantle is to create a new structure in which people are judged by their opinions about Israel or something and you know through that they'll be able to whatever they become more educated but I also think that there's a very there's a there's a sort of statistically small but disproportionately poisonous group people who score highly on you know what's psychologists call the dark triad personality traits maybe 10 to 20 percent of people uh, in these kinds of movements and causes you know they're they're basically just looking to glom onto any movement that will allow them to gain power and to undermine a structure and to reconfigure the hierarchy so that they can be on top and this is you know and, and they're more than willing to use uh, or you know sort of ex because well, my, my guess is through growing up in schools like this and through volunteering at uh, um, places where there are disadvantaged kids who you know, require literacy tutoring and so forth and inter interacting with some of their parents that a lot of these parents just don't have time to really understand what's going on and these parents are checked out and they have jobs and you know there's just not a lot of resources and attention that they're able to devote to what their kids are learning in school and so this is like a perfect opportunity for you know sociopaths to sneak in <laughs> and to sort of take over the school administration and, and conquer uh, the curriculum in a way that they couldn't. But then, as I'm saying this out loud, I'm also aware that there are sort of private private schools where a lot of this stuff is also going on. But I don't think to this extent, I think the difference is that a lot of these private schools, they still do um, promote sort of learning, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Those kids and those can kinds read. Yes, like, exactly. there could be extra weird they, they shit are, on yeah, top. Exactly. Yeah, yeah there's, there's a sort of a luxury there where if you already know to read and write, then you can you know, pay lip service to some of these other ideas. But if you don't know how to read and write and all you're learning are these ideas, then, yeah, you're not going to be able to excel in your life. The other one I want to ask about was, like, I thought the Claudine Gay controversy was a really interesting intersection of race and class. And um, speaking from my own lived experience as a white liberal, it, it seems like there's this weird thing where, like, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to be too harsh on my fellow white liberals but like we want to feel involved in the quest for racial justice and we look around and it's like Claudine Gay Claudine Gay makes $900,000 she'll be fine she like MLK did not have Claudine Gay in mind when he was marching um, wh why do you think so much attention goes to these cases involving I mean it goes back to Gale where you have very privileged people pretending to be oppressed how do you explain that phenomenon I, well, that, I think that makes sense in a way that it's it's really hard to create effective solutions for people who are at or near the bottom of society of, you know, taking disadvantaged kids and teaching them how to read and write and, you know, figure out how to lift them up. But, you know, if you can just fill a seat with, you know, a historically member of a historically marginalized group, then you feel like you've done something and you feel... You can pat yourself on the back and feel like you've advanced a progressive cause or something. Um, but I think, you know, I, I write in this book, you know, this, this term, sometimes I refer to it as trickle-down meritocracy or trickle-down diversity. This idea that, you know, as long as the top 1% or the top 5% of society, you know, as long as it perfectly mirrors the demographics of the country. So as long as the 1% is, you know, 50% women and X% percent LGBT and, you know, X% percent Hispanic or Latinx or Latin or whatever. Choking the, game yeah, yeah, advocates, yeah, 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 yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's got to be one of those. Um, that somehow society is okay because the ruling class looks exactly like everyone else. Uh, whereas, you know, and, and the idea here being that, you know, if there's representation at the top, 
But somehow, magically, their benefits will trickle down to the marginalized people in the rest of society. So, you know, Claudine Gay is the president of Harvard, and somehow that's magically going to uh, transform uh, low-income and impoverished communities across the country. Um, some, you know, I don't know. How, it's funny because a lot of the people who believe that will criticize the idea of trickle-down economics. Uh, but, but those are two sort of based on the same kind of principles, and neither one of which really makes sense. But um, that's, that's the idea here, is like you, you want to do something that you, that's within your control, that's within your power, and, in, and it's an easy, quick fix. Um, but I, I hope, you know, one of the things I'd like to do with the book is to just sort of open people's eyes to, you know, this other, this other part of, of, of the country and that we should be thinking about them, in addition to who's fulfilling the seat of the Harvard presidency. I have like 20 other things I want to ask you. I'll just do one more before we go to audience questions. Uh, what kind of feedback have you gotten from like friends and family members you actually write about in the book? Um, you know, so I sent it to some of my friends. You know, there's there's a near the end of the book, I talk about one of my friends who was in prison, and uh, I sent him this like screenshot of uh, some article that said, you know, we have to, we, we're not allowed to use the term ex felon, we have to use justice involved person. <laughs> and, he, and he is an ex felon. <laughs> And I sent it to him, and I said, "You're, you know, good news. You're not a, you know, you're not an ex-felon. You're a justice-involved person." And then he wrote back, you know, "Ha ha, you're not a college graduate anymore. You're a classroom-involved person." Um, but you know, I sent him, you know, some of the, but like, he's, uh, yeah, just, just candidly, a lot of these guys aren't really readers. And I told them some of the stories. I, you know, I, I basically like orally, I'm like, "Here's what the story I told in the book," and they're like, "Oh, cool," you know. And then, you know, my, my mom's read. You no, know, that's my mom. My mom hasn't read. I don't know. She's read some essays I've written. Um, my sister's read some a few excerpts where I talk about our early childhood. Um, you know, I, just, I was just at my my sister's wedding a few months ago, and <clears throat> I delivered this this wedding speech. And a lot of the um, you know a lot of the memories and stuff were at the top of my mind because um, you know I just written this book, and so I talked a little bit about our relationship, you know, <clears throat> childhood and stuff. And I uh, you know was, you know, was, I, was, I, I delivered the speech and then afterwards, you know, she, she was crying and she was like, you know, that was really, you know, it was really nice and everything. And, um, and then the wedding DJ, uh, you know, he came up to me and he was like, man, I've been doing weddings for 10 years and that was like, I mean, that's the most amazing wedding speech I've ever heard. <laughs> and, uh, and the, you know, the reason is because I've been thinking about these things for like the last four years. Um, and yeah, it's just, I mean, overall, I, the re- reception has been, I think, pretty good. Um, from the people who are involved in the book, and you know, I hope that you know, if and when they do sit down and read the entire thing from from start to finish, the final version, that you know, I feel, they feel like I've, I've done them justice. So, so we're gonna take questions now. I, I'm gonna be a dick because every time I've ever come to an event like this, someone not to be a jerk, but like doesn't actually have a question. It's like more of a comment. So please just try to. I can't see you, so I'm trusting you. Please just arrive with a question in your pocket. Thank you. know if you have learned to love yourself and really appreciate who you are. Yeah, I think I'm great, actually. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, sorry. And really heal from those early wounds. I'm a mother of three sons, and I just felt like I wanted to hold you in my arms when I heard you talk about that. And I'm hoping that happens for you. Uh, well, well, thank you. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I just read this review of, of Troubled in, in the Washington Examiner, and the opening line was something like, you know, for the first four chapters, 
you know, you just want to hug this kid and tell him everything's going to be okay. And then for the next two chapters, you just want to slap him. <laughs> because he continues to endanger himself and everyone around him. And those are like the, the teenage years. Um, love myself. I don't know. I mean, I guess pro- not, not really. I mean... <laughs> I like myself most of the time. Like I like myself more now than I did, you know, when I was a kid or when I was 17 and when I was still struggling to figure out who I was and make my way in the world. But it took a long time. I mean, you know, sometimes when I uh, tell people um, you know, about my teenage years or people read something that I wrote, they're like, okay, I see you now. And then I think about, you know, this period that you're telling me about when you're 17 or something and it just seems like two different people. And, and I mean, most people are different, right? In their 30s versus when they're teenagers, you know, you're naturally going to change. But for me, I mean, a big part of that transformation was just sort of being in the military, being in that very sort of rigid structure, learning discipline, learning camaraderie, how to be an adult. And I mean, it's funny, like, I don't, at least for me in my case, and probably maybe this is more just sort of a male thing in general, is like, you can't just like think your way or feel your way into loving yourself. I think you have to like achieve something and do something and sort of, you know, have have some impact on the world and on the people around you in a positive way before that starts to, you know, that higher self-regard starts to, starts to take shape. Um, I think you might have already alluded to the question that I'm about to ask, but so we see a lot of people who have rough childhoods and then um, in my social circle, like, you know, when you become an adult and then you realize that you have all these relationship problems, life problems, a standard advice that you get, you, you, you usually get from your friends is, oh, go to therapy. Like, you, you know, you find a therapist, uh, you pay them $100, $150 or more each and per hour and then talk to talk about your problems. What do you think about like, well, what is your opinion on therapy? And yeah, if your opinion on therapy is that it's, it's not, not the best, like, what do you think on an individual level people should do when they have life problems that might require transformational changes? And also, on a societal level, like, if, if we can't have, like, universal therapy or something, like, what should be a better way to help each other to overcome their problems? Thank you. Um... I mean, I, I write about some therapy experiences in the book, and I, you know, when I was a little kid, I don't know how much it helped, maybe a little, but later on as an adult, it probably did help me more. Um, I mean, ultimately, I, I think like a lot of, a lot of like, maybe it can help people, but I would like to sort of look before that, like try to, try to prevent the circumstances that led someone to re- you know, require therapy in the first place or seek it out of... You know, the loneliness and the isolation and the neglect and all of those kinds of things that happen that can lead to um, feelings of low worth or difficulties later in life. Um, you know, I, I've seen people say, you know, now therapy is, you know, people are just hi- like hiring a friend. And there's probably a lot of truth to that. Um, <clears throat> You know, so so some of you may, may know. I, I write a lot about evolutionary psychology, and that's some you know an area of interest of mine. And one thing that you know a lot of this research points out, and you can see this even now in in developing countries, that people need each other uh, in order to survive. So you know, historically, evolutionarily, in the ancestral landscape, 
humans required one another in order to survive. And then this, you know, this is true in poor countries today, whereas now it's less true. Um, we're so rich that you don't need friends anymore. Just in, in terms of just survival, material survival, you know, you can go an entire day without speaking. You could probably go an entire week, maybe a month, with just sort of tapping on your phone and having groceries delivered and so on. But humans Hell yeah. Need... <laughs> I, mean, we, I guess we kind of learned that, right, during the lockdowns. Um, and so now we're, I think we're slowly sort of coming around to understanding that, you know, social relationships, in, in a weird way, they're almost like a luxury now, and you have to sort of work on them and, and, and cultivate them and seek them out. And friendships require just as much work, maybe not just as much, but almost as much work as relationships. Um, and so now, you know, like if there are, I mean, I think like, we, we take our friends for granted. There's a great book uh, called, called Friends by, by the evolutionary psychologist Robin Dunbar, which I recommend, where he, and he talks about this, that it's very easy. You know, when you become busy, you have work, you have relationships and obligations. The first thing to go are your friends, you know, because you think they'll always be there for you. Um, but friends have half-lives. They can fall apart, too. And so, anyway, all this is to say that... Uh, you know, maybe therapy can help, uh, but I, I do think there is this sort of crisis of relationships and loneliness and all those things that could also be sort of addressed. It did. I don't know. It seemed like something flipped toward the end of the book, where just your ability to actually face down what you've been through and talked about it—that was a pretty big deal for you, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it was. I mean, it had been kind of simmering in the back of my mind and inside of me for a while. Um, I think part of it maybe, and this is like this is weird, but I think I just didn't have the vocabulary yeah. too. Like when I was seventeen, you know, I was I was reading books, and you know, maybe I was you know somewhat curious and smart, but it wasn't until my like early to mid twenties that I had the language required to express those feelings and get feedback and you know sort of talk to people about it, and that was really yeah. I mean, it, it was helpful to just, I mean, and, and that's like a. a, a a role that you know, family and friends and other people around us can can serve too, uh, in addition to, to therapy. Rob could, you, Rob, could you talk a little bit about how you define cultural elites versus liberal elites, and what kind of distinctions you see at the top? Hmm. Yeah, you know, I some people say that I, I criticize the, the liberal elites, and I never use that term. I mean, maybe it's you know, I. My exposure to elites, uh, it's been primarily through elite universities, and it's just a statistical fact that uh, most professors and students and graduates of these places are disproportionately likely to lean left. And, but I don't really talk about that. I just talk about their beliefs as beliefs, not sort of trying to pigeonhole them one side or the other. But naturally, because that's where their political sympathies lie, you know, that's just people will interpret that how they will. Um, I mean, cultural elites, uh, if you read the work of uh, Paul Fussell or Pierre Bourdieu or other sort of modern sociologists, you know, they, they sort of categorize, you know, political elites, people who are senators and congressmen, presidency and so on, like sort of top level government officials. Business elites, it's the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and so on. And then cultural elites are the people who run sort of academia and journalism, media and so on, and kind of control the, or not control, but strongly influence the content that we see uh, online. <clears throat> and this, to a large extent, is why many, not all of them, but many of them get upset when, you know, the suddenly the the constraints are lifted on something like X or someone suddenly uh, arises and gains a, a large following on YouTube 
um, because you know this is like you know the gatekeepers get nervous about this. Um, <clears throat> but is there a distinction between cultural elites and liberal elites? I, I mean, I don't. I just don't know. Like liberal elites, like I guess people who vote liberal and are at the top of their professions. But I think it's more useful to think in terms of those factions of business elites, cultural elites, and uh, political elites, and so on. Do you think we can use the same like social psychological tools to explain luxury beliefs as we could to explain like there's a weird phenomenon on the right where to be taken seriously you need to you can't say Trump lost the election. Is it all just the same stuff at the end of the day? Um. Well, I, I mean, I don't. I wouldn't know if I call that a. I mean, so it's not a luxury belief, but is it the same? The same uh, mechanisms yeah, causing people right. to signal sort of a social pressure. Yeah. yeah. Um. Prob- probably yes. Um. Yeah. I mean, these are all like sort of at the bottom. These sort of social psychological phenomena that people don't want to be ostracized and they don't want to be. You know, they don't want their relational value to decline and sort of. In psychological language, you know, they don't want their regard to drop, and so people will say what they need to say. Um, but the thing is, like, I mean, I get, you know, if you're if you're whatever a working class person and you say Trump didn't win, well, okay, okay, so 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 this would be like a Republican you should be imprisoned. Elite. That's like, where you're going with Yeah, like the, the conservative elites, or like the yeah, if you're at the top of the Republican Party or something, and then you say that, does I mean, I'm trying to think, like, does it have the same? Uh, yeah, I guess like undermining undermining the political structure and so on. I mean, yes, this does have downstream detrimental consequences, but it doesn't necessarily have, like, the same impact on policy and on culture, and, like, at least in an immediate sense. So, yeah, that's just something I'll have to think more about. That is interesting. Hi. Uh, I wanted to ask a follow-up question. Could you lean closer to the mic, sorry? I wanted to ask a follow-up question to a statement you made earlier in this conversation. Um, I'm paraphrasing here, so apologies if I, like, mischaracterize your opinion. But you said something along the lines of, um, it would be nice if the elites used their outsized economic, social, and political influence to help those basically disadvantaged, marginalized. This one's kind of a two-parter. In your view, why should they do that? And if they should, how might they be compelled to do so? Well, why should they? Oh, I think, I don't know if that is. They, they want to, right? I think, I, you know, I, I, I know I criticize elites a lot, but... I, you know, I think like most elites, especially on an individual level, they're perfectly fine people. Like I, I, I'm not an anti-elite person. I'm not like a communist or something. I mean, <laughs> although communist societies also had elites. I mean, every society has elites. Um, and you know, I just would like them to be better. Um, and <laughs> they, and I think they want to do the right thing. I think most of them do. legitimately want to help impoverished, deprived communities. Um, but they just have very little contact with them, and they are more than willing to listen to sort of self-proclaimed leaders of you know this or that you know community or woke, woke kindergarten. Yeah, 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 right. And and just like take them at their word that oh you're you know you look like a member of that community and you know even though you went to the same college as me but I'll just listen to you. Um, and so why should they yeah I mean they want to but then you know how how would they do that and so like how do we get them to I mean I think yeah just through talking about it and sort of um, attempting to gradually um, help to erode the taboo around around speaking about these issues about like what it's actually like living in these communities and what would actually help them 
I know that a lot of these, especially cultural elites, I mean business elites less so, uh, are more than happy to, you know, cut a check. You know, oh, you're poor and your life is bad, so you know, just throw more money at you. And you know, I'm I'm perfectly fine with financial assistance. I'm you know, I don't argue about against that anywhere um, in my book or in any of my other writings. Um, I think it's perfectly reasonable that if you're financially successful, that you can pay a bit more to help those at the bottom. But that's not the only way to help poor and working class people. Like you know, behavior and values and good role modeling and all those kinds of things that you know that that can lead to you know you making your own money and your own way in the world. Um, those can be important too. And so I, in one of my Substack posts, I draw this sort of distinction that you you know you can pay this sort of economic tax of just cutting poor people a check, but you can also pay the social tax of modeling good behavior and promoting good values and those kinds of things. And it's, I call it a tax because it does, like, especially now, you know, if you publicly speak about these things, you do run the risk of undermining your reputation a bit and taking some slings and arrows from people around you. How dare you say that? Or are you blaming, how dare you blame poor people? You know, they'll twist your words. But if you can pay that tax, and if collectively more elites would be willing to pay that tax, that we could have some non-trivial effect on, on uh, you know, helping, helping the poor, not just by throwing money at them. I mean, I have people in my family who, you know, I have an aunt who, she's been sort of on and off drugs for a while. She you know, sleeps on her daughter's sofa and sometimes on her son's. She's just in a really bad way. And, you know, they have to very carefully monitor how much money they give her because if they give her too much, she's just going to go run and get some drugs and hurt herself. And so I can imagine, you know, if she was... You know, if she was receiving 1,500 yang bucks a month, like, she would probably be dead, dead within a matter of a month or so. Um, <clears throat> and so for someone like her, she, you know, she needs much more care. And, you know, I know that teaching her about good values, something like, that's not going to transform her life overnight. But to be in a community of people where, you know, where, where's a better environment for her? A poor community where, you know, there's a lot of fatherlessness and crime and, you know, vandals and, you know, guys like me and my friends growing up or a poor community where people are married and look out for one another and try to help those who need um, I think if we could find ways to create more of those latter kinds of communities then someone like my aunt would be in a much better off uh, position so. there was an interesting example in your book where there's this horrible shooting um, and long story short your, pit, your moms get an insurance settlement and they're trying to figure out, or a payout, and they're trying to figure out what to do with it, and they end up investing in California real estate in, like, 2006, which, as some of you may know. And it, it was interesting to me, because, like, I... When I started making some money from the podcast, I knew you just put it in an index fund. That's not because I'm smart. It's because I was surrounded by people who told me what to do. If I'd been in a different situation real estate so it's this weird thing where it money obviously matters but it's not just money it's it's habits and stuff yeah 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 you're you're around people who have knowledge and you just absorb it through osmosis you know that you just learn these things that you're not sort of there's there's economic deprivation but there's also this kind of knowledge or intellectual deprivation uh as well um yeah, the, 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 that kind of social capital around you can, can be critical. Yeah. Hey, Rob, great to see you. Um, luxury beliefs, they really start to sound like religious dogmas over time. And I'm wondering from your experiences, what has been the best way to engage with holders of luxury beliefs 
to you know, help them understand that number one, they are luxury beliefs, and then number two, that they're causing harm that they they not be aware of, to sort of arrive at a place where they might not change their minds fully, but at least they become more willing to have a discourse around these these difficult topics, or or some people just too you know, indoctrinated to to reason with. Yeah, I mean, I it's I. I... It's, it helps to not be uh, to take a look, sort of a combative stance, um, you know, to be sort of willing to listen and and to sort of find areas of agreement first. But one thing that I find helps is you know to have have uh, you know people say that facts don't change minds, but I've seen people change their their minds over facts over a long enough and sustained enough period. And when the facts come from you know the approved you know, the sources that, that person you know gets their information from. Um, so to have um, like the, the statistics on hand of, you know, hey, it's interesting. I read this YouGov survey, and you know, the richest Americans are the most in favor of defunding the police. <laughs> why do you think that is? Uh, or why are the poorest Americans the least in favor of it? Or you know, why are white Democrats very strident about this and not other groups? And so to to just have that knowledge in mind and to be able to communicate it, and you know, hopefully it's in. I mean, yeah, hopefully it's in, in sources that the person will uh, be be open to, but. Yeah, I think having having uh, the statistics at hand can be can be helpful. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, hi, Rob. Nice to meet you. Um, very quickly, I'm a big fan. I've gone through similar experiences, so reading you is a is really fascinating. But on to my question. Uh, there are many social scientists like Robert Putnam and Charles Murray who have documented and researched many of the problems that you describe and experience in your book and on your Substack. My question to you is, are you more optimistic about the state of things now, or are you perhaps more pessimistic? And if so, why? Mm. I mean, short term, more pessimistic, uh, but maybe medium to long term, more optimistic. I mean, you know, because it's very easy to just sort of look at I mean, I, so I think a lot of people can get stuck in this trap of getting, like, drowning. You know, I mentioned statistics earlier. It's good to have those on hand, but don't drown in them and sort of look at long-term forecasts of what's going on with families or what's going on with crime or what's going on with this, that, and the other because it's very easy to, you know, feel uh, helpless in face of that. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I liked studying psychology and why I chose to study psychology rather than sociology or economics or political science is because psychology is, you know, ultimately about the individual and what you can do. And so, you know, as long as you, know, you, you can you can think about broad societal patterns and how do we change society, but ultimately it just starts with the people around us of, you know, how do I be a good, you know, a better son or a better uh, friend or family member and so forth, just the people around you. And so, but then promoting that, right? Like, you know, people who live in upper middle class roads, like they don't have to think that much about that, but if more people are willing to speak publicly about that and to share those values. I think in the medium to long term, I mean, we may be able to turn things around. I think people are are starting to become more willing to speak about these things. Um, there is an awareness that society is diverging more and more along class lines, and sometimes people attempt to disguise it in political language. As Jesse started this uh, discussion with, that oh, it's this you know the Democrats or Republicans in this group and that group. When a lot of it, I think, is is truly about social class issues. And once we can focus on that and shift the conversation there, that we may be able to move the needle in a more positive direction. Hi, 
Hey, Robert. I haven't read any of your books or Substack. I only heard about you today from my friend Andius. Um, but it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, my background is in philosophy, political theory, and the law. I went to Columbia Law School. I studied in Cambridge as well. I was at Pembroke College. I don't know which college you were at. Um, my question is, um, I grew up in China. I'm from China. And Marxism was drilled into my head in China, in the public school system in China. And one of the lines I remember as a kid was the economic foundation determines the superstructure, right? So you talk about the hegemony, the liberal elites in America. So, so if you're talking about the culture or the cultural industry, that is determined in, well, from Marxist point of view, that's determined by the economic structure. It's the capitalist economy of America. And, it, and, and, and some people even argue that we're living in techno-feudalism. This is not real capitalism anymore. It's, it's a monopoly. <laughs> it is oligopoly. So my question to you is that do you think radical politics is relevant to, 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 to dismantle you know, the hegemony of liberal elites? Do you think it, you, you don't believe in radical politics, so like socialism, et cetera, you know, democratic socialism? No, no, I do not. Um, I, yeah, I'm, you know, yeah, I'm, I mean, I've, I've read quite a bit of communist history and I'm extremely skeptical of it. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not in favor of, of, of sort of radical politics. You know, I guess, I guess in this, uh, this sense, you know, people, People are, uh, you know, they well, they want to categorize you. Are you liberal or are you conservative? But in this sense, I guess temperamentally, I'm more of a conservative. That I, you know, I think radical change. It, it sounds nice. It sounds interesting. It sounds. Uh, it gets the, the the blood going and it makes you feel energetic and lively and vi you know full of vitality. Um, but you know, more often than not, you know, when when there's that kind of mass fervor, it doesn't necessarily like. There's no guarantee that's going to go anywhere good. And historically, when lots of young people take up a fashionable cause and try to topple the government, it doesn't end well. Um, and so, no, I don't, I don't think that's, that's a great idea. I would, I would much more rather have that sort of incremental change of sort of slow and gradual reform of sort of changing minds and, and you know, whatever, like going through established processes of, you know, whatever, you know, if we need to oust people through the existing processes and change policy and change culture step by step. I'd much rather have that than, you know, dismantle it all. I think that's, you know, it, it could be exciting and fun if you're young, but for most people, it's, it's not going to go, yeah. So, let's, we're going to do a lightning round. Um, it's 7.24. We need to be out of here by 7.30 because they, they have another show. Um, let me just do some quick thank yous before, and then we'll, we'll let you guys ask as many questions as possible. Um, obviously, thank you to the Village Underground. You guys don't need to applaud after every day. Uh, <laughs> thank you to, to Liz, the manager, incredibly helpful. Thank you to Noam Dorman, who's an incredible patron of this sort of thing. He's the owner. He lets us do these events. Thank you to Jill, your publicist. And uh, most of all, thank you to Rob Henderson. And Jesse. No, just no. <laughs> shut up. Um, after this, we're going to Three Sheets Next Door. We'll continue the conversation there. But let's just do a sort of lightning round, try to get to these last four questions. Hey, how are you? Um, I'm wondering what you think about the impact of severe poverty on family instability, even with a two-parent family. One, sorry, one parent. I forgot to thank the service staff. <laughs> Treat them well. Seriously. 
so, so at least with, within, um, uh, so in the U.S. context, those two things are loosely correlated. You know, family instability and, and poverty. Um, but it seems to be less true in developing countries uh, where there is like you know, poverty looks different in developing societies outside of the first world, outside of the developed world, and in those places there's not much family instability uh, simply because relationships are required for survival. And so, you know, I was in Malaysia recently, I see it there a lot. Uh, I spoke with a guy from Kenya the other day and he was telling me that like, yeah, there's like dire poverty, but people are getting married and everyone knows their neighbors and you know, it's, it's required. Like if you want to know where your next meal is coming from, you have to know who your next neighbor is and people take care of each other. And so, you know, I, I think we, we concentrate a lot on poverty uh, in the US, but I think that there's there's another factor here. I think there's a cultural element that we, we often overlook and we want to retreat to discussions of poverty because making value judgments feels icky, it feels uncomfortable, but you know, we those are important too. Hey Rob. Um, see, it would seem to me that the communities Can you uh, put your mouth up to the mic? It would seem to me that the communities both in the US and internationally that most implement the types of solutions that you advocate tend to be staunchly religious ones. What do you think? I, I know religion isn't talked about a ton. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the overlap between religion and implementing the solutions you need more than in society. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, religions do supply a framework for a lot of people, uh, and you know, if you're if you're smart and you're educated and you know, you're well off, you don't necessarily need those frameworks to sort of find your footing and figure out how to live a flourishing life. But if you don't have much in the way of, you know, material resources and social capital and those kinds of things, you know, having sort of basic heuristics and rules that religion used to provide can be very beneficial. I just had this conversation with a vicar in Cambridge who was telling me that Atomic Habits is a secular Bible. And <clears throat> essentially the idea here being that, you know, a lot of this stuff in Atomic Habits is like, you know, whatever, like be disciplined and stick to your habits and save for a rainy day and remember tomorrow. And it's like all this stuff that like your, you know, your religious grandparents knew. Uh, and that, like, people who are atheists or agnostics today, you know, they're not going to get that, you know, they're, oh, that's, you know, they're not going to take the Bible seriously, but then there's an Atomic Habits book that has, you know, self-help disguised in modern scientific language that is just sort of telling you stuff that your grandparents knew. And so, anyway, all of this to say, that, yeah, religion can be can be very useful. Jordan Peterson is Jesus, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. In, in this view. Yeah. <laughs> So maybe we end with uh, a, a question about why we ended up here. So we ended up here because people associate you with Jordan Peterson and so on and so forth. Whatever. My, read, my take on your writings is that you're trying to skewer hypocrisy. You're not trying to skewer polyamory. So I wonder, my specific point being, are you really, you're not promoting policy. You're observing outcomes based on choices. If people want to be polyamorous, fine. I, I, this is my read, but I'd, I'd love for and what you're really talking about is the hypocrisy of saying, behave this way, and then in your own family, in your own community, behaving a different way, and not recognize the consequences. But Jordan Peterson would say, or well, I don't know, whoever, uh, you, you know, uh, Ralph Reed would say, don't be polyamorous. I don't hear you saying that. I hear you saying, understand the consequences of your choices. I, I just Maybe that would help clarify like, where you stand personally on the... Tell us all, with, with your girlfriend in the audience, how you feel about it. <laughs> Polyamory. Polyamory. <laughs> um, that's, that, I think that's, that's a fair characterization. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not quite as strident in my, you know, here's how you should live and here's what you should do and here's how to, But, 
you know, and, and I do sort of cite more statistics and research and so on. Um, but yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I wrote this, this post last year called you're probably not the person I'm judging. And the idea here <laughs> being that, you know, there are like, that is, that is the thing that I, I get the most irritated about is when there's a, there's a, a mismatch between what people say and what people do and they're promoting a value that could have harmful consequences for other people but privately they're behaving in a way that statistically on average leads to more positive outcomes for themselves and their families um, and so you know if you're so I mean a simple example is like if you're polyamorous and you live in that life and you're promoting it I mean fine like that you know you think you're doing the right thing and you're trying to get other people to do it. like I don't like it but fine whatever but it, what, what upsets me more so is when someone lives in a conventional <laughs> monogamous marriage but publicly they're like you know let a thousand flowers bloom and every relationship is the same as any other and who cares and stop judging people um you know it's funny like there's one of the more at least twitter famous poly people diana fleischman she's a evolutionary psychologist married to jeffrey miller they're poly but one thing i really like about them is that they openly acknowledge that like these are two you know nerdy academics who live, you know, comfortable lives and they know how to navigate these complicated relationship dynamics. And Diana calls it a luxury belief. She says, like, yeah, polyamory is a luxury belief, but this is my life. And, you know, I try to tell people, like, it's not going to work for everyone, but we managed to make it work. I respect that. And I think that it would be, you know, we, we'd have a better society if people could recognize their own advantages and when they partake in these sort of newfangled ideas and causes and movements and lifestyles. So. Thank you guys so much for coming out. And thank you to Rob Henderson. Three sheets next door. We'll uh, we'll continue this there, but do clear out so they can uh, set the room.